Well, good morning. It's good to uh, be back here again. It's been a while. I uh, just want to say quickly that I really appreciate the prayers uh, that have gone up this week. I've, I've felt them, and I, uh, I desperately need them. So much appreciated to, to those who were, who were praying for me and for this service, and uh, much, much appreciation to those who pray for, for this service every week, and for Dylan and for Jim and for Jay. Um, we, we try our best to bring the Word the best we can, but uh, we, we just could not do it in the way that, that we do um, without you guys uh, praying for us. And so uh, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and let's get into it. Father, this is your word. And these are your people. This is your church. I just pray that you will be glorified in everything that happens today. All right. Um, This world is pretty messed up. This world is an evil place, no doubt. And I think many of us have probably said those words in some form. But have you ever found yourself wondering, after reading a headline about the latest tragedy or or seeing the latest news of the latest act of terror or hearing about the latest crimes committed against the poor and needy or even this thing that we just went through called the presidential election. Like, have you ever found yourself wondering if times could get any worse? If they could be any more evil? I have. I've found myself asking that question before. Um, And if you haven't, maybe you're an optimist. Or it might be that that you just finished reading Genesis 6. (laughs) Because what we're about to study today at least makes me think that things can get a lot worse. Um... And so this morning we're going to look back at the world and, and what I think could be its darkest moment in history. Um, we're going to hear about things for which we have no modern day equivalent. We're going to venture into the strange and supernatural and although we've already seen the, the horrible effects of sin to this point in Genesis, today we're going to see how sin had reached even to the realm of the angels. And we're going to see the darkness that resulted and ultimately the judgment from God that came because of it. But we're also going to see something else. We're going to see God at work in a different way. In spite of all the evil, we're going to see God draw near to His people. We're not going to see a God who is detached and and disinterested because things don't appear to be going His way. We're going to see a God who is very involved and in fact very patient as things continue to get worse and worse in the world. And we're going to see a God who even as begins to unleash the most severe judgment this world has ever seen, we're going to see a God who still shows grace to those in whom he finds faith. And so here in Genesis 6, starting in verse 1, we're told that when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So from the time of creation, we fast forward around a few thousand years, and and here's where we pick back up in verse 1. Uh, when man began to multiply, we're told, on the face of the land. So, so we hear the word multiply, and, and many times uh, we're prone to think of the operation, like you know, addition, subtraction, division, multiplication. But the author here is really just trying to tell us that there were lots and lots of people in the known world, a bunch of people running around. The word used here actually means to increase by tens of thousands upon thousands, like to become many, to become great. And so when men and women were everywhere on the settled earth, we see in verse 2 that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now, if you, if you read this quickly, it seems like uh, pretty normal stuff. I mean, from the very beginning, males and females have always been attracted to one another. That's, that's not something that we're not familiar with. But this, at least in our modern Western culture, isn't what we call normal stuff. Um, the attraction we see here was, was anything but normal. In fact, it was, a, it was a gross abandonment of the original intention of God for His created order. And while we've all witnessed some, some strange and, and perverse things in our day concerning sexual immorality, um, gender identity, the, and the like, I mean, at least outside of Hollywood, we, we really haven't seen anything quite like this. I mean, we've seen some pretty strange things, and we, we are continuing to see things get more and more strange. But this is beyond our scope of modern experience, um, specifically because of the characters in play. Um, and so before we go any further, I just want to pause and I want to challenge you guys here. And, and rest assured that, that I had to challenge myself in the same way as I prepared this sermon. I want to challenge you to, to not disregard certain sections of the Bible because they're hard to understand at first glance. Or, or some do. I, I, want to, I want to warn against just seeking an interpretation that makes you feel the most comfort. Strictly because the alternative may fall outside the realm of, of, of modern experience and understanding. I'm saying this because... This is one of these passages where this can easily happen. Um, But it doesn't stand alone by any means. I mean, think about it. How much would we have to disregard or seek to change if this was our approach to Scripture? Think about all the miraculous and supernatural stories and accounts we read about in Scripture. Think about the Exodus and the miracles that surrounded it. Think about Samson. Think about Elijah and Elisha and the miracles surrounding their ministries. Think about the the visions of the prophets in the Old Testament, the virgin birth of our Savior, the miracles and unexplainable events that surrounded Christ's ministry and the ministry of the apostles. I could go on and on, but how much would we have to disregard or change if we only accepted the ordinary and the familiar? We would certainly have to disregard the results of believing the gospel. Because the greatest miracle is that a dead man walking can be made alive in Christ. It's a miracle that I'm up here. So we should be somewhat, as Christians, we should be somewhat used to the realm of the supernatural and miraculous um, and the abnormal. It's all over the Bible. Like we, we should not really be too afraid when we come across passages like this. But some, I mean, for some reason, we, we've just kind of put some of these just in kind of their own category. And this is one of them. Um, and so we're, we're going to look at it today. And, and hopefully... Um, most of you don't, don't need the challenge. You know, hopefully most of you don't, don't need this challenge at all. Um, but I felt compelled to throw it out there um, because of all the debate and all the arguments that surround it. 
Um, I just want to be objective and fair to what the text actually says because it's in here for a reason. I mean, God put it in here for a reason. This is the inspired Word of God, and we are to let it impose itself on us, not otherwise. So in verse 2, we're told that the sons of God were attracted to the daughters of man. Um, So what is the author saying here? Uh, What's so different about this particular attraction? Who are these sons of God? This is a million dollar question. And so the two most widely accepted answers are that they're either angels or they're men. So which is it? We see the phrase sons of God used three other times in the Old Testament. And all three uses are found in the book of Job. So let's start there because the scripture is always the best place to start when you try to interpret the scripture. So Job 1.6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Job 2.1 says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Job 38.4-7, this is God questioning Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? We could answer that one for Job. He was nowhere. It was the foundations of the earth, period. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Men were not on the scene. Sons of God were. Pretty clear who we're talking about. It's pretty much without dispute that in these three passages in Job, when the sons of God are mentioned, that the author is speaking about angels and not men. Um, and now this, this alone is a pretty strong case for Genesis 6 if we were to stop here, but, but we can't. At least, at least I couldn't, because there are a few men who we all would probably, probably hold in pretty high regard who, who, uh, who don't make that same jump. And they think the phrase here in Genesis 6 actually means man. Sons of God is actually talking about men. And the reasoning, which, which probably has its beginnings in Augustine's book, The City of God, Augustine was one of them, um, who, don't get me wrong, like he would, like we could sit for probably an hour at his feet and learn more about the Bible than we've learned in the last ten years. I mean, Augustine contributed so much to our faith. He was a giant. Like he, we, we've learned so much from him. But I think he was wrong here. Um, but he, in, in his book, The City of God, um, he says this, um, and he says, And by these two names, the sons of God and daughters of men, the two, the, the two cities are sufficiently distinguished. For though the former were by nature children of men, they had come into possession of another name by grace. Um, and so while we would all acknowledge that, that we see these two societies or, or cities developing throughout Scripture, there are more than a few problems with, with the strict application of this particular understanding to the passage in Genesis 6. Um, do we see the two seeds or the two societies in play here? Absolutely. There's no doubt. The issue is, is that the seed of the serpent has not just affected mankind at this point. According to the plain language of the passage, it appears to have gone out of bounds. Some really strange things were happening. It's, it's no longer strictly dealing with human beings. We see here that it's reached to the realm of the angels. And to say otherwise, guys, is really problematic. It's really problematic. And here's why. For one, as we've already seen, the language is clear. I mean, if you just picked up your Bible and read it, like you would, you would probably land on that. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. The language is pretty clear. We just don't see any other place in the Old Testament where the phrase sons of God is used in reference to men. And now those who hold to the two cities view would say that, that we may not see the usage in other places in the Old Testament, but we do in fact see the term sons of God used in reference to men in the New Testament. And they're right. In Luke 3.38, it's used in reference to Adam. In John 3, it's used in reference to believers, 
about 3 through 8 section, John chapter 3. But what's important to note is that when the phrase is used, whether in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it is always used in reference to those who have been created directly by God. Created directly by God. Adam was created directly by God, right? We wouldn't, I mean, we wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear. God, believers too are created in Christ directly by God. I mean, look at, listen to what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18 says. Therefore, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. God has created us. Those who are in Christ has created us new. He's made us new, the Scripture tells us. God did this directly through His Holy Spirit. So we have Adam who, who hands down would say, we would all say was created directly by God. And, and he's called the Son of God. We have believers who are called sons of God and are made a new, a new creation through the Holy Spirit directly by God. And, and guess who else was created directly by God? The angels. The angels were created directly by God. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to defend that. But God created everything. Angels are created beings. He created them. Um, another point regarding language relates to the Septuagint, which is also called the Greek Old Testament because it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament we call the Septuagint. You guys have probably all heard about that. Many of you know what it is. The translators of the Septuagint translated the phrase sons of God as angels. Like that's how they translated it. Is, this is angels. That's a big deal. I mean, I don't know what else to say here, but that's, that's a really big deal. Another thing to consider is that when Augustine wrote what he did about how the, the, the two cities view applies to the sons of God here in this passage, he was actually in disagreement with his forefathers. There's little doubt that he had a pure motive, but, but most respected biblical scholars today, guys, have come full circle and are holding to the most ancient interpretation. Where they disagree now is, is how these angels actually copulated with women. The bigger question is now is, is, is whether they had real bodies or whether they possessed the bodies of men back then. And then you have the other texts outside of Scripture. I'm going somewhere. Hang with me. You have other texts outside of Scripture, of, of which there are a few, that go into much greater detail about these sons of God and the Nephilim that were born to them. The most credible one being the book of Enoch, or First Enoch. It's the most credible because it's actually quoted by Jude. In fact, Dylan um, had the verses up last week, Jude 14 and 15. And it was also considered by, considered by and used by many early church fathers as a reliable historical source. Um, it's books like it, um, it's this one and books like it that were very, very familiar to the Jews. Like you could reference, to many Jews, you could reference things out of these books and you wouldn't really even, you could just say a few sentences, which is what Jude and Peter do. We'll get to that in a second. And the Jews would know exactly what you're talking about. It's like... Like a movie that's just really made it, and there, you know, there's a, a famous quote, you know, in this movie, and we just throw it out there, and like everyone in the room knows exactly what you're talking about because they're familiar with that. Like it's where our culture is, it's what we watch, it's what we consume. Like the Jews knew these books. Were they inspired? No, no, but they were very familiar with them. And I have to emphasize that the Book of Enoch, Enoch, is not in, considered an inspired text, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. And while I can't prove what is or isn't true in the book, I can say that there are reasons it was left out of the Bible, and that's good enough for me. It's not inspired. But when it comes to this subject, it seems pretty clear that that two New Testament authors, namely Peter and Jude, leaned heavily enough on this book that they allowed it to inform their understanding concerning the subject. Like they leaned on it to inform them of at least the characters in play, Um, as did many early church fathers. much more familiar to them than it is to us. Now, now the details may very well be skewed, embellished, I don't know. 
Uh, but most would agree, once again, that the identities of the characters are accurately portrayed. So when we're looking at this section dealing with the giants and the angels that fell and all this kind of strange stuff, most scholars will say, yeah, I mean, the Book of Enoch, gets the, it gets the characters right. Like in broad strokes. Now, the details, we don't know. Like, it gets really detailed. Uh, I, don't, you know, I don't know about that. Um, it's not inspired, so we can't trust it fully. But... Um, I've read a good chunk of it, and, and, and I want to just share a, a section here or two with you. Um, and I, haven't, I, I didn't take the time to just summarize everything, but there are some guys out there that have, and so I'm going to borrow from them. Um, but I'm going to read this section, because it, it sounds just like Genesis 6. It says, And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels... The children of heaven saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. They took into themselves wives and each chose for himself one. And they began to go in into them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments and they became pregnant. And they bare great giants, or Nephilim as Genesis 6 refers to them, whose height was 3,000 elves. That's really tall. And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray, and they became corrupt in all their ways. Sounds a lot like what we read in Genesis 6, does it not? Once again, not inspired. And then there's one more section I feel like I need to present, because it's relevant to some passages in First and Second Peter and Jude, books that are inspired, that really shed a lot of light on Genesis 6. It goes on to say, To Michael likewise the Lord said, Go and announce this crime to those who have been associated with women. Bind them for seventy generations underneath the earth, even to the day of judgment and of consummation until the judgment. So now let's go back to the Word. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, not the physical act, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who who has gone into heaven and is, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Notice the mention of spirits in prison and angels and authorities being subjected to Christ. Notice also that Christ proclaimed this message of victory. Guys, I don't believe what Peter is describing here was an evangelistic effort. I don't think that fits with the Scripture. This was a proclamation of victory. These angels had messed up. And I don't know to what standard they're held, but they are powerful beings. And there's, just, there's a difference in how God relates to them. We see it here. Peter goes on to say in 2 Peter 2, 4-10, through 10, for, God, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Hell can be used, honestly, guys, hell can really be used interchangeably. Um, not only is it is used in reference, you know, obviously, to the final judgment in fire, but it, it also can mean under the earth. Okay, so I think maybe that may be really what the author is trying to, to say here, but cast them into hell. Because every, it just seems like they were cast under the earth. Like it's, That just seems to be the theme when you read about it. But cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. 
If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous, or to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Notice again the mention of angels who sinned, committed to gloomy darkness, and the mention of Sodom and Gomorrah and sensual conduct. What was one of the one of the highlighted sins in Genesis six? It was sexual perversion and sexual immorality. There's there's commonality there. And one more quickly, here's what Jude has to say, and this one I think it hits the hardest. Jude six and seven. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their pro- proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve in it as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is heavy stuff. And once again, we see the mention of angels being kept in eternal chains, as well as the mention of sexual immorality. There's a theme developing here, guys. is unnatural sexual passions in a way that we just don't see today. And there's more I could say, but, but for the sake of time, I'm going to move on. Uh, but, but doesn't it appear to be obvious that what Jude and Peter are referring to here is what's happening in Genesis 6? I mean, I, if you say no, then what in the world are they talking about? What are they talking about? I grew up listening to, to explanations of, first, of this passage, especially in 1 Peter, and, and it was just all over the board. And I just, I just remember thinking, like, it just seems like so like, kind of random. Like, what's that doing there? Because no one ever told me that he's talking about Genesis 6. What other, what other passage in the Bible can you point to for clarification on what Peter and Jude are referring to? There are none. Genesis 6 is it. And now, I know for sure that some of you are wondering about Matthew 22-30 because I've already been in conversation with some of you about it, so I've got to throw this in there. It says this, Matthew, Matthew 22-30, and this is why people have a problem, uh, probably the, the biggest reason why people have a problem with this interpretation. It says, For in the resurrection they neither marry, it's talking about the saints, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels from heaven. But does that really refute this? I don't think it does. I think it actually complements it. Jesus doesn't say that angels are without gender or that they can't marry. It says they don't. And these angels Jesus refers to here in Matthew are in heaven. Angels in heaven don't marry. The angels we see in Genesis 6, according to Peter and Jude, had abandoned their positions. They had left what God gave them in the heavenly realm so they could have relations with women on earth. So that verse actually complements what we're talking about here. It does not refute anything. And yet it's the main, it's the main passage that people will use and say, oh, it can't mean that. And I don't, guys, I don't think we should be surprised here that sin once again reached to the, to the angelic realm. I say once again because this event in Genesis 6 was obviously after the fall of Satan. And you may be wondering, is, that, is there still that potential? I don't know. The Scripture isn't clear about the time frame for when all of the angels fall. But we can see in Revelation 12 that one-third do fall. Like we get a grand total. And I can confidently assure you guys of one thing. These events did not surprise God. 
It may be surprising to us to hear of it this way, and and it may make you a little uncomfortable, but God's not surprised. He's comfortable. And they didn't change His sovereign plan. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 46, 9 and 10. Love this passage. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. So why have I gone into all this detail about this particular part of the passage? Um, There's a couple reasons. One is, uh, although nearly not to the same degree, it's a passage that's, that's debated much like the creation passages. I mean, it's not nearly to the same degree. But it is, it is debated among people that really look at Genesis closely. But unlike the creation passages where it's really hard to tell exactly how God created everything and, and what exactly happened during that process, I believe we can clearly see here what actually happened. I believe God has given us the detail we need to know. Not all the details, but we can identify the characters. And that's, that's the issue here. Are the characters in play really angels? And, they, and guys, that's what the Scripture says. In our Western minds, like we're like, oh, like we, you know, we don't like to talk about miracles. We like to diagnose everything scientifically. We, but like a Western minds didn't write the Bible, like God did, and it's true. And there have been people that have been trying to disprove it and undermine it and, and question its credibility since the time it was written, since the canon was put together. And you know what? There have been guys that, in their efforts trying to do that, have, have come to salvation because they've seen like. Men can't, men can't do this kind of thing. Like there had to be something else involved here. Like the scripture, is, it stands alone. It is, it is the word of God. And we say, God, you, you speak to us. You inform us. We don't inform you. And he has informed us here. Clearly, what he's talking about. I think he's given us the detail to know exactly what happened. So I feel obligated to make the case for what I think the Scripture plainly says. And the first question you should ask yourself when you say the word is, what does it say? What does it say? And the next is, what does it mean? But the last question we should ask is where it really hits home. And that question is, how does it apply? What is this, how does God want me to change here? What is the application to this part of the passage? Why would God give us this kind of detail? Well, I'm sure it goes further than this, but, but where I landed was, was here. And, and Genesis has, has been really faithful to remind us of this truth. And that is the effects of sin are always worse than we think. They're always worse than we think. Someone once said, sin will always take you further than you want to go. Sin will always keep you longer than you wanted to stay. And sin will always cost you more than you intended to pay. That statement would most definitely apply here, don't you think? Do you think the angels who Peter and Jude tell us are bound in darkness until the day of judgment would agree with this? We can at least affirm that sin, sin kept them longer than they wanted to stay and, and cost them more than they wanted to pay. We would do well to think more on the seriousness of sin. I would. It has plunged both angels and men into darkness. And God will not and cannot overlook it. He can't because He's God. We're going to get into that in a little bit. And so in verse 3, God God has seen enough. The author says, 
He goes on to say as much. Verse 3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Now, some believe this is in reference to the actual lifespan of men. Um, but I think what he's referring to here is a countdown. I think he just kind of issues a countdown to the flood. And, and both views could actually work. I mean, if you look at the lifespan of man after the flood, it, it, it decreases pretty drastically. But I think what the author is doing here is he's telling us that, that the countdown begins. It took Noah about 100 years or so to build the ark. I mean, there's some margin there, but we don't know exactly when. You know, after, From this scene to when God spoke to Noah, we don't really know the time frame. Um, but I think that the author is trying to do is he's, trying to show, he's showing us what's going on in heaven while we see what's going on in earth. So like, like a movie, like the scene starts on earth where the line of Cain is, it seems to be prospering without hindrance. Like, it makes me wonder if these angels were even deceived by what appeared to be life without God with no consequence. I mean, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Life without God, no consequence. We're building cities, we're having families. Like, we don't need God. Just makes me wonder. And so these angels, they've done the unthinkable and all seems well at first. It says they're marrying and being given in marriage. Uh, not those words exactly, but the, but the text really implies that this was orderly. Like angels were marrying women. Like they were... Like it, it wasn't like this kick down the door and take whoever you want. Like it seemed, there seemed to be some order here. And then we cut away to the heavenly realm where God speaks and... And I think what he's saying here, I, I think what the author is trying to convey is that God's saying, okay, it's time. I'm not going to allow man in whom I have breathed the very spirit of life. I'm not going to allow him to continue to live this way. In 120 years, it's all going under. And so the 120 years begins. The heavenly countdown begins. And, and sin always costs you more than you want to pay. Life on earth, normal. People just living, line of Cain, thriving. And so the story continues. And meanwhile, back on earth, the Nephilim, verse 4 tells us, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, after the flood, that is. Also afterward, this is precursor to the flood. So this is really what we're talking about here when he, when he says, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So, here are the results of these sexually perverse relationships between these fallen angels and women. The Nephilim. This keeps getting more strange, right? Like, what in the world? But Nephilim here is another word for giants. That's what, that's what the word means, it's giants. Um, it says that they were on the earth in those days. And guys, this, I mean, this really sounds more like Lord of the Rings in the Bible. Like, I mean, it's just strange stuff, right? And so it goes on to tell us that these were the mighty men of old. Men of renown. And now if you were to go home and, and look into this on your own, it wouldn't take you long to find all sorts of, of websites and books and articles and YouTube videos with claims of archaeological finds of massive human bones at different sites around the world, um, supposed cover-ups of these finds, etc., etc. I'm sure lots of fun has been had with Photoshop um, on the Internet. Uh, I, it's hard to know really what's real and what's fake when it comes to the evidence and I encourage you not to get caught up in it. I've read some things. I've got some books. I mean, interesting, but it's really not probably worth your time. I probably wish I had that time back. Um, but the Scripture plainly says it, so I encourage you to rest in it. Just rest in what the Scripture says. 
But consider this. This is interesting. Ancient mythology is full of stories of heroes and giants who had great influence and great power and were fierce warriors. Think about the Greek gods and their images and the sculptures and how they mostly have an appearance of enormous strength and size and power and and many times are very human-like in their appearance. What about Hercules and Cyclops and the Epic of Gilgamesh? And, And I could go on and on, but have you ever wondered where these myths come from? Have you ever wondered where they originated? Well, I don't claim to know for sure where they all originated, but after reading Genesis 6, I have a hunch. And so does Bruce Walkie, who writes a really good commentary on Genesis. He says, Instead of the Bible representing myth as history, as is commonly alleged, perhaps the ancients transformed history into myth. Something to think about. Now, no doubt, as mythology evolved, it was exaggerated and embellished, and in many cases probably ended up being far from the truth. But I think there is a very real possibility that much of it relates to the days of Noah and the time right before the flood. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer has to say about it. This guy's a heavy hitter. I don't know if you guys know who he is, but whatever he writes, you should probably read it. He's really good. More and more we are finding that mythology in general, though greatly contorted, very often has some historic base. And the interesting thing is that one myth which occurs over and over again in many parts of the world is that somewhere a long time ago supernatural beings had relations with natural women and produced a special breed of people. And the Bible says that this indeed did happen, actually. Supernatural beings, we know their true identity, angels, were in fact guilty of this and it produced the giants, the Bible tells us, the men of great renown, the Nephilim, Capital N. And just as most recent cultures have a flood story, or most ancient cultures have a flood story, most also have this story. They have a story for this. Do you realize that there are 32 verses in the Bible that mention giants? 32. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot. Here here are a few examples. Amos 2.9. God is speaking here, and He says... Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. That's, that's some strength. Second Samuel 21.20, there was war at Gath again, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he had also been born to the giant. Sounds like there were some different genes being manifested here. Deuteronomy 9, 1 and 2. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go and to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Men of renown. Some of you might be thinking like, wait, these, these passages are dealing with post-flood periods, but remember, Genesis, remember uh, verse 4 of Genesis 6. It tells us that the giants were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And I don't have time to explain the possibilities of how they came into existence, but if you want to hear some more about that, then just grab me and we can talk. But the Bible says it once again. And there's 32 verses that deal with giants. It's very, very plain. 
And so these giants of Genesis 6, they were, they were mighty men of renown, the Scripture says. But it goes on to say that they weren't famous for their righteousness. That's not what they were known for. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And if you skip down to verses 11 and 13, you see the author gives us more detail uh, to this statement. He, he points out that the earth was filled with violence. So here we have this gigantic race of, of physically dominant hybrid people being born into a world that was utterly depraved and where gross violence was the norm. I wonder how they became famous. Well, I think we can safely assume that it had partly to do with their ability to kill and conquer and dominate. We definitely see this association with giants in the Scriptures post-flood. You think about Goliath, the sons of Anak, stories of David's mighty men taking these guys down that were massive, big, huge guys. But whether it be the giants or normal men, we see that in those days every intention of the thoughts of men's hearts was only evil continually. I mean, that, that is about as strong of a statement as you can make about depravity. Only evil continually. So the measurable wickedness was great, probably greater than it's ever been. But God looks beyond what, what we see. He looks beyond our behavior. He looks at the heart. And what He saw was comprehensive corruption of the heart. What was seen on the outside was bad enough, but what was in the heart, what was unseen, was what ultimately moved God to judgment. And this should be a little unsettling. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says about the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, his ways according to the fruit of his deeds. Psalm 44.21 says, He knows the secrets of the heart. Plain and simple. So even for those who may not have taken a direct part in, in the gross violence and the sexual immorality of the day and, and no telling what else, those are, those are the two sins that are specifically highlighted. God says of them that they were all continually evil at heart. They were okay with how things were. Life without God, the way of Cain, had become the norm. And there were no plans to change course. None. Evil was at the center of everyday life. Sin had absolutely consumed the ancient world. Evil was dominating the hearts and minds of almost everyone in the known world. Bad situation. Dark, dark, dark days. I don't think we're there yet. The patience of God is just beyond us. And God knew the secrets of their hearts. So how's your heart these days? Because God knows what's in it. Proverbs 27.19 says, As water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. What is your life reflecting? What do you enjoy? How do you spend your time? What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? Is your closest counselor the Word? Or is it Dr. Phil or Fox News or CNN? Or someone who has no fear of God? There are so many things that compete for our hearts in this world, guys. We know. 
So many things. But God is the only one who knows what to do with it. Every other influence will only lead you astray and will ultimately lead you into darkness. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. You see, the ancient world didn't do this. Their father came for God's warning in Genesis 4, as we just saw. And it didn't seem to be so bad after a while. Like we saw a few Sundays ago, they were building cities, once again having families, prospering. Things weren't so bad as far as they could tell. And like so many today, they were, they were living with hearts wide open to anything and everything. Completely blinded by sin. Unable to see truth. Unable to see the truth about their condition. But God could see it. God could. Are you watching over your heart? Because God is. Do you understand your desperate need to be delivered from a heart so sinful that it is beyond human understanding? God does. And the good news is He's made a way. And we're going to get more on that in a minute. So back to the text. The author says in verse 6 that the world was so bad in those days that the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now the initial reading of 6 and 7 can cause some of us a little discomfort um, because it seems to call into question some things we know to be true about God. Uh, Namely that God is immutable or unchanging. Uh, But a closer look I think will show us that this is not a case of God changing anything about Himself or of God being inconsistent. But rather it's just the opposite. It's a case of God being perfectly consistent with who He is. It's God being God. It's man who changes. And once again, Bruce Waltke says it so well in his commentary on Genesis. He says, The unchanging God is always pained by sin. Moreover, because He is immutable, He will always change His plans to do good if people persist in their sin. Jeremiah 18.10 says, And if a nation does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. God's change of mind about the human race at the time of the flood is entirely consistent with His unchanging character. God is not fickle. He does not change His mind, including His mind to reconsider. People can count on God always to reconsider His original intention to do good or evil according to the human response. Know this about the mind of God, guys. It is always hostile to sin. The intensity of our sin will never eclipse the hostility of God towards it. He is consistent. And this goes back to that simple but profound warning that God gave to Adam in the garden. If you sin, you will surely die. In other words, if you sin, I will do what I have to do to sinners because I'm God. I will cast you away from my presence, the very thing and the only thing you need to live, and you will die. And that's what happened. Sin will always cost you more than you want to pay. But thank God that He didn't leave us there. And so the sins of the world had reached their fullness and God moved in judgment because that's what God does to sin. This is why the Gospel is our only hope. If there is one thing we can count on for consistency in this world, it's the hand of God. That's one thing we can bank on. He can always be counted on to deal with sin. God could not love us and overlook our sin at the same time. Did you know that? This seems harsh. 
He couldn't love us and overlook our sin at the same time. Sin seeks to destroy us. I'm not going to embrace what harms my family, my kids, the things I love. We may not understand it, but He does. He knows what sin does. And He couldn't love us if, if He tolerated it in our lives. He couldn't overlook it and love us at the same time. And those who choose to cling to sin will go the way of sin, the way of Cain, the way of the ancient world. Dylan says this often, you can't hold on to your sin and hold on to Christ at the same time. But for those who cling to God in spite of their sin, there's a different ending. And we see here in verse 8 that there was still one who called upon the name of the Lord. There was still one who believed. The line of Seth appeared to be down, but it was not out. Verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was living proof that the seed of the woman was alive. Because Noah, as we will see, believed God. And he was saved just like we are, by grace through faith. The author of Hebrews sheds some light on it here in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, and then in verse 7. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. In verse 7, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning, concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Listen to what James Boyce has to say about verse 8. Could a blacker picture of the utter depravity of man and his rebellion ever be painted? It is hard to think so. Yet just at this point, when the black thunderclouds of God's wrath against human sin are at their most threatening, a small crack appears. Grace shines through, and the promise of a new day dawns. And while we like to lift Noah up and, and make him out to be some kind of a, a super saint, and while no doubt um, he was probably a really good man in many ways, and, and while we know that he feared God in the midst of a terribly, terribly wicked world, it wasn't Noah that gave us the promise of a new day. Noah was a sinner too. We're going to see that here pretty soon. But the writer of Hebrews tells us that Noah had faith. Noah believed God when he was told to build the ark, so he built it. His faith produced action. He believed. He wasn't perfect. He sinned. But when God spoke, he believed it. He trusted God. And deliverance was at hand. Because the whole ark, that whole story is just a picture of Christ. Because it was ultimately Christ on whom our judgment fell. He is the full and final way of escape. He is the light of the world. He burst through the black thunderclouds of God's wrath. That was Christ at work in His people. Judgment has been handed down and pardon can only be found in Christ. Noah was a shadow of what we see so clearly today. If those in the ancient world would have just listened in turn, they would have been saved. Desperately sinful. Sinner, if you will just listen in turn, you will be saved. The offer still remains. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. 
1 John 2, 2-3 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. And what lies at the core of all the commandments of God? Believe. Believe. Faith. You cannot and will not ever be perfect. You will never keep His commandments perfectly. But it's faith in your heart that wants to. It's faith in your heart that confesses this is good. This is right. And you may not choose to do it all the time, but in faith you believe it is good because it's God. Noah wasn't perfect, but he believed. You will never please God on your own. You will never defeat sin on your own. You will never change your own heart from pursuing the things of this world. You won't. You've got one option. And that is to believe in the one who is perfect. Noah believed God. Abraham believed God. Isaac believed God. Jacob believed God. Joseph believed God. None of these men were perfect. And yet God moved mightily in their lives. Because as the author of Hebrews says, they believe that God is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Back to chapter 11, verse 6. He's made a way. It's the only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God apart from Me. He is the ark. He's the gate. He's the door. He's the access to God. The one we desperately need to live. We were cast away from His presence. And Jesus says, come through Me and you can have it again. Come through Me and you can have that. The only thing you need to live. He was the one we were created to depend on. He made us to need Him. It's part of our design. We don't like the thought of that, do we? God made us to need Him. We're going to keep messing it up if we don't turn to Him. What do we see in the world today? We cannot function according to design if we reject that, guys. We will not be accepted if we reject that. He's made a way. Unbeliever, don't be like those in the ancient world. Don't reject the only way of escape. Sin will surely cost you more than you want to pay. Don't cling to a sinful heart turned against the one who loves you beyond measure and who knows your heart more than you do, better than you do. Believe. Trust in the Lord and see that He is good. Believer, don't don't be discouraged. Like Noah, hold fast to what God has revealed in His Word. Trust God. He will hold you up in a terribly evil world. He will sustain you in spite of it. The line of Cain is making another surge. Wickedness appears to be on the rise. But just as in the days of Noah, it will not prevail. Just as the world was judged with water, it will once again be judged. But this time with fire. God's Word says it's coming. We can count on it. Everything He says in His Word happens. Everything. There is no book like this book. It's coming. God is so patient. But worldwide judgment is coming. And repent. That's the only thing I can say, guys. Repent. 
Cling to God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will stand in Noah's place. You too will find favor in the eyes of the Lord. So as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of what it cost God to provide the way back to Him. We're reminded um, that there had to be a payment for the crimes committed. We're reminded that God's justice had to be satisfied. And for that to happen, a man had to die. But not just any man. It had to be a perfect man. It had to be an Adam. And so God came and He produced for us what we could never produce for ourselves. From plans made long ago, the seed of the woman produced what was promised. And that perfect seed, that sinless man, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, stretched out His arms on the cross and gave up His life as a substitute for those who would believe. He was the only one qualified to do it. He was the only one who could stand in Adam's place. He did what the first Adam failed to do, and because of that, the saints of old and the saints today have a hope that cannot be shaken. It can't be shaken. Not by angels, not by giants, not by the flood, and not by the coming fire. Because by the grace of God, we've believed. We've met, we've met the requirement, those who believe. And though angels may fall, faith will persevere. So as we drink of this wine, this juice, let us remember the, the blood that was shed for our sin. And, and as we break this bread, let us remember His body broken on the cross for that sin. And as we leave this place today, let us leave in the strength and, of the, and, and in the promise of life everlasting. And with the hope of the return of the One who has delivered us. To those in whom He finds favor. To those who believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, God that You have delivered us, that You have saved us, God, that You have provided for us what we could never, ever provide for ourselves. God, this is a dark, dark story. And if the world continues on the path that it appears to be on, Lord, we, we think that it's, it's probably going to get dark again, just like that. And I just, Lord, it's, it's concerning because so many, Lord, we know, don't know You, so many have just been content with life as it is and they've ignored that nagging voice, that reality that tells them they've been created for more. I pray, God, that if there be anyone in, in, in the crowd today that is hearing that voice, God, that, that, Lord, You would just bring them to repentance. I pray that as believers, Lord, we would be encouraged in knowing that the days may get darker, God, but You are faithful. You don't change. You have provided the ark, God. You have given us what we need to be saved. You have given us Christ. You've given us Yourself. Help us to just take courage in that, Lord. Help us to be faithful to share that, to preach it to ourselves, to preach it to others, God. While we have breath in this world, Lord, help us to be faithful. In Christ's name, amen. We just ask if you guys, uh, if you're not Christians, if you're not a believer, then please uh, don't take of, of the Lord's Supper. It is, it is for the family. So uh, we ask you instead to take Christ and then come and have this meal with us. Thank you.